0: Morning, uh, Daniel. I appreciate you uh, reading that text of Scripture, which is a compliment to uh, what we're going to look at this morning in, in Mark chapter one. Um, I, I was just in Mexico yesterday. I spent three days at a pastors' conference and returned last uh, night from Mexico. And uh, so many things, so many good things, are happening there, uh, south of us. And um, I hope that uh, as a church that we can be involved in what God is doing there. Uh, Mexico and Latin America has never experienced a reformation. And so there's a number of large ministries that are uh, putting a stake in the ground there um, in Latin America. And in particular, this conference, this pastor's conference was about 800 pastors there um, just outside of Monterey. And um, so God's doing a, an incredible work in Latin America. And so we should keep our eye south of us uh, and be engaged in that. And I'll bring you opportunities as they arise um, to, to be engaged in that. It is uh, a privilege of mine to, to be on the front lines there and serving Mexico and Latin America as a whole and the Spanish-speaking world as a whole, as a matter of fact. So I kind of bring greetings from Mexico. came back last night. And I'm thrilled to be with you this morning. If you're a guest with us, we're certainly glad that you're here. Uh, I love a rainy day because rainy days are good for preaching. That means you have nothing else to do today. And I can just go, 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 right? I can go all the way to 1 o'clock except for my wife's in child care this morning. And she has reminded me of the importance of ending on time when you're taking care of the little ones. So. Uh, I will strive to to do that this morning. So if you're a guest with us, we're grateful you're here. We will be respectful of your time, and uh, we appreciate you being a part of our worship service. And and if there's anything we can do to serve you, uh, we certainly want to to serve you uh, in a great way uh, as you have visited with us today. And it's a privilege to have you among us. Uh, We are in a series in the book or the Gospel of Mark. It's one of four biographies about Jesus Christ. So join me in Mark chapter 1. This morning, for our consideration, we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. The title of our topic this morning is this: God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. Mark 1:14 to 20. I'm reading out of the NASB, the NASB. And so, let me read the text, and then we'll get busy in the text as we do week after week. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Immediately, that's the common used word in the book, in the gospel of Mark, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little bit further down the beach, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. They were the The sons of thunder, as you know, and uh, they were also in a boat mending their nets and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. This text is a reminder to us this morning that God delights in using ordinary, plain old, ordinary people like us this morning let me give you a little bit of context john the baptist as you know from last week was a preacher all right he he was convicting his task was to stir up the conscience of israel he was a rock star a celebrity it says there if you'll note in verse five all the country of judea was going out And all the people of Jerusalem were going out to the fords of the Jordan River to hear this wild and woolly guy who's dressed like a prophet, as we learned last week. Not unusual to dress like a prophet. It's just they haven't had a prophet in 400 years. In 400 years, there's been total silence from the prophets until John the Baptist steps on the scene out in the wilderness country. And he's preaching like a tent revival out in the wilderness part of the country. And everybody is heading out to hear him and they're repenting and they're being baptized um, by John. So you could say that he was kind of out of this world. His preaching was stirring. Um, It evoked their consciences to remind them of the coming Messiah. And as good as John was, even John picked up on it and said, listen, I'm not worthy to even tie or untie the sandals of the one who's coming, which is the lord jesus right so john was a preacher and he was a mighty fine preacher he was good i mean he was very gifted god used him in a tremendous way but as good as john was jesus was a better preacher and as you see in verse 14 he came preaching that was what he came to do was to preach the gospel of god so john was a preacher in mark 1 Jesus is a preacher in Mark 1, but Jesus is so much better than John. John couldn't hold a candle to Jesus' preaching. Why? Because he's God. I mean, he had perfect exegesis. He had divine insight. His illustrations were appropriate and and applicable. I mean, he was laser-like in his preaching. He knew exactly what the people needed to hear, repent and believe. And as a matter of fact, he's the best communicator of the gospel that's ever set foot on this planet in its history, right? And so it's a pretty big deal that John came preaching and that Jesus came preaching. And the reason why it's a big deal is that's because that's what we do every single Sunday. That's why we gather to sit under the preaching of God's word. It's not the only thing we do, but it is the supreme thing we do. That's why the majority of the service is weighted towards the preaching and teaching of God's Word. The most time we're going to study, spend together, is studying God's Word. And the reason why is because of the text. It's not my idea to stand up here flat-footed and open the Scriptures and explicate them to you. This is a divine mandate. John came preaching, and in the text... Jesus came preaching. That's why we do what we do. This is kind of art of ordinary to gather in a theater and to listen to for 45 minutes to an hour, flat-footed, little magnification, but flat-footed, and just listen to the preaching of God's Word. The reason we do that is because it is prescribed in Scripture, right? It's what we do when we gather together in, in corporate worship um, and it's like the Puritans said, it is the supreme act of worship. And so we do it because of John's example, and we do it because of Jesus' example. Jesus was the classic example of what it means to be an expositor, to, to explicate God's word. It's why we do what we do every single week. Here before you in 14 to 20, Jesus launches his oral ministry. It's the first time that Jesus speaks. Remember, Mark is the first gospel written. And for the first time we heard God's voice there in verse 11, this is the first time we hear hear Jesus' voice where he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So he launches his oral ministry in this particular text here before you. Now, just to remind you, Where we left off last time so that we can catch up in context here. Um, You had um, John's out there baptizing. You have Jesus' baptism. We looked at that last time. You have the public inauguration of his ministry. You have him being swept away into the wilderness and his defeat of sin and defeat of Satan's temptation. And then here in verse 14, remember John's moving at a breakneck pace. Here in verse 14, you have now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. He wants to give us a little bit of insight into the timeline. So between verse 13 and verse 14, one year has lapsed. Okay? So in that white space, you can put one year if you're trying to keep the chronology here. Remember, Mark's cap- captivating Peter's ministry and thoughts. He's writing them down, and he's moving extremely fast. We see that by the repeated word 50 times, the word immediately. And so between 13 and 14, you have one year lapsing. all right? And there are so many events that happened in that year that aren't captured in Mark's gospel. It's just not a priority for Mark in his writing. There were lots of things left out. As a matter of fact, from John 2 to John 4, if you want to know what happened in that year, you'd read John 2 to John 4, and you'd see you could plug that in in the white spaces there, and you'd see the things that Mark decided to not record. For example, the cleansing of the temple. The Samaritan woman. Jesus passing through Samaria. Um, His ministry in Jerusalem. His ministry in Judea. All of that he, he passes over. Mark passes over to get to the launching of Jesus' public ministry and his teaching, right? And he comes to push back darkness and to preach the gospel of God. And he does so with authority. Look at the, just to see that, look at verse 27. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority, He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So Jesus comes as a preacher. He comes speaking with authority. This is what he did, and this is why we gather every week to do this. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. That's what I came for. That's why I'm here. So John was a preacher and Jesus was a preacher. And that's why we gather every week to sit under the preaching of God's word. This is why you don't stay home. And uh, you can get preaching online. We, we, we know that. But something happens uniquely in what we call the preaching moment. This. Because you've got the body gathering. You've got the spirit superintending. You've got music preparing our hearts. You've got prayers. You've got things that you can't replicate in your living room And so that's why we think the church is absolutely critical as a custodian of the gospel and of the preaching ministry passed down to us from Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. And this, in verse 15, is the first time we hear Jesus' voice in the gospel of Mark, which is the first biography written. Now, we're going to look at these seven verses and I just want to point out kind of a 32,000-foot kind of a paradigm that these verses produce. And we'll kind of remind you of that at the end. But you'll see that they're really imperatives for every disciple of Jesus Christ from this time, verse 14, forward. And it's this. Repent, believe, follow fish. Repent, believe, follow fish. When Jesus launches his public ministry and he begins his preaching this is the constant mantra or theme that comes out of that repent believe follow me and fish God uses ordinary people but what I want to do as though that is a 32,000 foot view of this text and will be replicated throughout Mark what I want to do is look at the two distinctive marks of kingdom living and kingdom thinking, and kingdom ministry. There are two here in this text. The first one I want to call your attention to is found there in verses 14 and 15, it's this. The power that is in the gospel. The power of the gospel. Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. And so that is a distinctive mark of gospel ministry. The power that is contained, as Romans 1 says... The power that's contained in the gospel. The life-transforming power that is in the gospel. We preach our heart out. I study all week long. Why? So that we can preach the gospel, right? And it's a simple sentence that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. But it is packed with meaning. John the Baptist As a matter of fact, had been arrested at this time for what? Courageous preaching. He had rebuked Herod Antipas for marrying his niece and went right into the courts and confronted him. And he is in prison for his faithfulness to the gospel of God and not allowing him to continue in his sin. Then Jesus, here in verse 14, walks out of obscurity. It's been one year since his baptism, and he makes a number of choices. The first choice he makes is the location where he shows up. Jesus came into Galilee, northern Palestine. It's an outlier kind of region, uh, definitely not the center of religion, and definitely not where influencers and key thought leaders come out of. They don't come out of Galilee, right? They come out of Jerusalem. They come out of the center of of where religion would be. So his first strange choice here is the location that he plans to start his preaching ministry. The second crazy choice, which we'll see in a moment, is his choice of a team. He chose 12 ordinary men to change the whole world, four of which are contained in this passage. Seven of the 12 are fishermen. And I'm telling you, you would never choose this team. You would You would have never chosen Peter. I wouldn't have chosen Peter. You probably wouldn't have chose the sons of thunder, the two brothers there, who were always fighting and always up to some shenanigan. You just wouldn't have. You would have gone to the religious elite. You would have gone to Princeton or to Yale. and You would have got the best minds and the best talent. And that's how you'd build your team. It, it's countercultural and it's awesome and it's encouraging because it's plan A. God uses ordinary people and he has no plan B. That's the whole purpose of reading 1 Corinthians 18 to 31 that God delights in using ordinary people to transform the world. And you're getting to see the first four of those get called out. So he has a strange choice of location. To launch his ministry in obscurity. Out on the outlier part of town. Rather than being in the hub of everything. And around the people. Much like John. Who goes out to the Jordan right. To the fords where the rivers come together. Out in the wilderness. And he starts his preaching ministry. Making all the people go out there. So it's a strange choice of location. And it's a strange choice of team. Right. How God chooses to use ordinary people. Just like us. And the text then says. That he, look at it, he's preaching the gospel of God. Depending on your version, I think ESV says the kingdom of God. There's synonyms, right? He's preaching the gospel of God. He preaches with authority, right? He preaches with urgency. It's the gospel of God. Romans 1.1 also talks about the gospel of God. Why? Because God's the author, God is the source, and God is the initiator, Of you coming into the gospel. And all three are in play. So Jesus comes preaching the gospel of God. Which originates with God. It's God's idea. To send Jesus his one and only son. To be crushed on the cross. To die for our sins. And to defeat Satan. Which we saw in verses 12 and 13. The gospel of God. The kingdom of God. In this text. Is just simply a synonym. And then he says. The time, verse 14, the time is fulfilled. And you're thinking the time. He's not talking about clock time, 24 hours in a day. It's the word kairos. It means a moment in time. And in this case, a moment in redemptive history. And it's like one big moment, this prophetic moment. Like everything comes together and it's a moment. That's the kind of time. It's a a chaotic moment. Moment in time, and Jesus walks out of obscurity and he starts preaching and he says, It is fulfilled, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So, he's trying to tell the people who he's preaching to that this is a significant moment. As a matter of fact, they had been waiting 2,000 years. They had been on pins and needles for 400 years because they hadn't heard from a prophet. But for 2,000 years, they said, the Messiah is coming. This is the moment in our text. This is what you're reading. This is a divine moment, a significant time in redemptive history. 4,000 years they've been waiting for this time. For the occasion, for the Messiah to step on the stage and to redeem mankind. As we look back 2,000 years to the cross, they looked forward for, for 4,000 years for Jesus to show up. And he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The is at hand phrase meaning this. You can reach out and touch him. It's embodied in a person. It's in Jesus Christ. He's right in front of you. He's telling him the kingdom of God is at hand. Boom. Look at me. I am the kingdom of God. I am the Messiah. I am the one in redemptive history you have prayed for and longed for and waited for. This is a chaotic moment. Kairos. This is the right time. The perfect time. The time that God proposed and demonstrated by sending his only son. And as a footnote, it's another setback for Satan. As Jesus was unrelenting in verses 12 and 13. Now he steps out and picks up up his preaching and picks up his use of his auditory skills. And now he says the time is at hand and and Satan is defeated. Another defeat added to what he experienced in the desert. And then he says the kingdom of God, the kingdom that belongs to God. There are three dimensions to the kingdom, and I think it's just important to just footnote here so that you know as we talk about the kingdom of God, you know what we're talking about because scripture uses it, this phrase, the kingdom of God, in three different dimensions. First, it's spiritual. The kingdom of God is in the hearts of repentant people. It's present. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's now right in front of you. Second, it's not only spiritual, but it's physical there's a millennial kingdom coming revelation 20 luke 17 20 to 21 the whole book of revelation talks about this kingdom of god coming it's a it's a millennial a thousand year reign on earth and then there is a what we call now and not yet there's a future kingdom an eternal kingdom where there's a new heavens and a new earth okay so this phrase the kingdom of God is used in a multiplicity of ways in the scriptures and here in its context the kingdom of God is at hand it's right in front of you it's in a person it's physical it's spiritual and the way you get into the kingdom is to repent and to believe that's entrance into the kingdom and that's the right question that they would have you should have how do i get in If the kingdom of God is at hand, it is fulfilled. For 4,000 years you've waited, here I am, I walk out into Galilee, I start preaching. He tells them exactly how to get in. To repent and to believe. That's how you become a Christian. It is that simple. It's not that complicated. To repent, it means to reverse course. It means you do a 180 in your life. It means you turn away from something. What is the something? You turn away from sin and being a sinner. Romans 3.10 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It only takes one sin to be a sinner, even though you've committed many sins, right? You're a sinner by nature and by choice. And so you have to repent. You can't earn your way into heaven. You'll never be good enough. On your best day with the Holy Spirit blowing downhill with you, full wind in your back, you're never going to earn your way into heaven, right? You have to have the bad news before you have the good news. The bad news is you're a sinner and you have to repent of your sin. That means you acknowledge your sin and acknowledgement of sin precedes grace being dispensed to your life. Right? It's not cheap grace, It's expensive grace. Jesus died on the cross. It's a call to die first. You must renounce your sin, you must repent of your sin and repent of your independence and then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in that order. I love what Bert Parsons said. He said the church is the only organization in the world where you have to admit you're a wretched sinner to become a member. Think about all the organizations. We join. I'm, I'm a member of a number of organizations, you know. And not a one of them says, hey, you have, to, you have to admit to be a member, you're the worst sorry sinner on the planet. I'm the worst sinner I know. You should say that about yourself. Every single day, every single meeting I walk into, I know that I'm the worst character in the room because I've sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, and then he says, this is how you get in you got to repent. you got to admit your wretchedness. you got to embrace the, the bad news before you get the good news, right? And this is huge. This is huge that he is preaching the gospel of repentance. Second, it's a two-step process. Repent and what? Believe. Believe in what? The gospel. You must repent and believe in the very gospel itself. You have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king of the kingdom. This is what you have to believe. He is the righteous one and the only one who came to do advocacy for you who will stand before God when you stand before God and say, I paid for his sin. I paid for her sin. And that's why you should, Father, let them into the kingdom. Right. It's more than mental credence, though. It's to believe on. It's not just, I believe Jesus. I believe he was a a man who walked on earth 2,000 years ago. It's lordship. It's a submission of your life. It's a commitment of your life. It's complete reliance upon the gospel. You have to believe in the gospel. So let me say this. The kingdom of God, what Jesus is preaching, is a simple message. Why? Because he's coming to ordinary people like us. And it's really simple. You have to repent of your sin, and you have to believe that he can save you, that he is and was the Messiah, and he's still saving people. And the message hasn't changed in 2,000 years. So when you go to talk to your neighbor, and, they, and you ask them, are you a Christian? And you say yes, or you ask them if they're a Christian, they say yes. Then you say, how do you know? Why? Because I repented and I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm in the kingdom because I know the king. It's that simple, folks. That is evangelism. You don't have to get all jammed up about all the other things. That is really that simple. I think sometimes in America, and I've had this experience, it's harder to join a church than it is to get into heaven. They've made it so hard. There's like a 20-week class to get in, in, into the church, and they do all this stuff and all these shenanigans. And I understand why they're doing that. I'm not condemning it. It's probably bright and smart. But sometimes we make it so hard to get into church when it's so easy to get into heaven. Now, I'm not saying it's cheap. It costs Jesus his life. But it is that simple. You have to repent and believe. And that is the question before you. If you say you're a child of the king and you're in the kingdom, I'm going to ask you the question, when did you repent and when did you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? It is that simple, right? There is power in the gospel. There is power in its simplicity. And it's a distinctive mark of the kingdom that you have to repent and believe, which together make the gospel powerful because it transforms your life. There is no such thing as repentance and belief and no transformed life. Your life, my life, will be different because I repented and because I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first distinctive. Here we see as Jesus unveils his public teaching ministry and he starts his preaching. It's pretty simple there in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. It's urgent. It's now. It's a moment in time. It's a moment in redemptive history. It's a moment in the whole story of the Bible where Jesus walks out of obscurity and says, the time is fulfilled. It's now. I am the kingdom of God, and I'm coming and preaching the kingdom of God. It's at hand. You can reach out and touch me. Repent and believe in the gospel. The power of the gospel is manifest in verse 14 and 15. Second distinctive part of the kingdom is the power of ordinariness. The power of ordinariness. God, look at me. God delights in using ordinary people like us. We are the hope of Bardstown, right? Because we have the hope of the gospel. He's not going to raise up a bunch of doctors and a bunch of rabbis and a bunch of religious elite and plop them in the middle of Bardstown. He says that you are to reach your community. And he's always delighted in using ordinary people and let's meet them. Because this is the case that he builds his whole plan of salvation on. That he departs some year and a half later off the planet and he leaves it to 12 ordinary dudes. None of which you probably would have picked to be on the team. They were the last picks in in the kickball team, right? They're still standing on the wall. They picked all the good players and then you got these guys. Jesus said, I'm going to pick all the guys that are left. And I'm going to transform their lives in such a way. And then I'm going to leave the kingdom of God at their disposal to preach, right? And we see those second two uh, paradigmatic words. Remember, repent, believe, follow fish. Follow fish is under the power of ordinariness. So after a night of prayer, we know from John's gospel, they prayed all night. So between verses 15 and 16, there's this all-night prayer meeting. You have verse 16. Check it out. I love this. And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brothers, Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. That's intentionally baked into here. They are blue-collar folk. Right? They're just ordinary people. They're fishermen. They're not. Uh, highly trained academicians, right? And Jesus simply said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Little context, the Sea of Galilee, pretty big sea, 13 miles long, seven miles wide, extremely productive for fishing, for industry, which you could see both the first four guys he calls are fishermen. And it's a very productive place to to fish, very busy lake to work on. It's located in the northern part of Palestine, and the population around the lake that lives close to water. Which, if you were living in the first century, just like you should, if you uh, or you come to a city, you want to be near water, right? There's resources in the water. You don't want to live out in the desert. Um, if if you don't have the kind of accoutrements that we have in the 21st century, in the first century, you want to live by water. So about 15,000 people live uh, in the outskirts here and Jesus spends the lion's share of his ministry in he's called his Galilean ministry in Galilee right half of all his miracles were in Galilee around the sea of Galilee towards and around these 15,000 people and so Jesus' radical message demands a radical response of surrender surrender And he goes down the beach one morning, and he's introduced to these four fishermen. None of us, again, I I can't say this enough. None of us would choose them. We'd choose a rabbi. We'd probably choose a priest, a Pharisee, maybe a Sadducee, a sage, right? Um, Someone from the Sanhedrin, right? Someone who could execute, someone who's a world-class leader. And we would make them, right, the, the leadership team that Jesus would lead the kingdom of God to, It's a very unorthodox selection process, and I love every minute of it, right? He chose men, not because of who they were, but really because of, in spite of who they were. They were simple fishermen. He had no plan B. They struggled with their sin. They write themselves in. Mark quit on Jesus. We saw that in Mark 14. Peter, who he's writing Peter's gospel, he quits on Jesus. They had a problem with quitting. Uh, They had a problem with faith. They had a problem with believing, right? They had had a problem with the cost of following Jesus. They were regularly guilty of throwing in the towel. They lacked patience. They're sons of thunder. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? Yeah, he just took 12 ordinary men and selected them. One commentator said it this week. The only thing remarkable about these men is that they are unremarkable. That's the only remarkable thing about this text. They are unremarkable, right? There's nothing that stands out. They're just a bunch of blue-collar guys sitting on the back of a pickup, mending their nets. Jesus walks by the beach in his sandals and sees him and says, Drop your nets and follow me. Yet he changes In this moment, he changes the course of history through his selection of these 12 ordinary men, his talent. It's mind-boggling. But who did they become? Let me list it for you. John became the bishop of Ephesus. Peter, the pastor in Rome. Andrew, he went so far all the way up to the borders of Russia and extended the reach of the kingdom of God through the power of his preaching the gospel. And God is still doing it today and wants to do it today even in our community. He wants to use us. He's gathered us together for a specific purpose and that is to preach the kingdom of God. To repent, to believe, to follow, and to fish. But I want you to understand it's not the first time they would met Jesus. This isn't a cold call. He's met him before. They've met him before. John chapter 1 says that they had gone out in verse 35 to 42 and heard uh, John the Baptist is preaching. when Jesus was there, they were probably at the baptism. So we'll say that was their conversion, that they either were baptized by John or baptized shortly after. So they were converted in John 1. And there's, so there's three epochs in their life. There's their conversion, there's their call to ministry. That's Mark 1. What you're reading is when he calls them to drop their nets and follow him into ministry. And then they become apostles in, in Matthew chapter 10. So here's the deal. There were many disciples. As a matter of fact, Jesus said he had 70 disciples, students, but only 12 apostles. Got it? You got to get those orders. So there's this is the calling of them. And then some of them will become Apostles, right? So 70 disciples, twelve apostles. You just want to kind of keep all that in mind as you're you're reading these different biographies. And so they were casting, as the text says, their nets in the sea. And you've seen this, they're still this today. When I lived in Florida, I would go down to the intercoastal waterways at night sometimes, and I'd see these guys, you know, they had a big net about 15 feet wide with weights on the end, and they would spin it around their heads, and then they would cast it, and that would sink, and you'd bring in whatever was in the net. And um, they were very successful at it. They were highly talented at it. Um, They weren't beach bums. Um, They had a a thriving business. They were good at what they they did. Um, And Jesus comes up to them, these two first, and says, follow me. Here's what's crazy about it. Rabbis, remember they accused Jesus of being a rabbi. They call him rabbi. Rabbis never recruited students. Students would apply to the school of Hillel or Gamal, and they would apply. And it was a very prestigious thing. It was a very elite thing. And so no rabbi, no self-respecting rabbi would ever go out and pick his students. The students would come to them there would be 200 applications. They would pick six to 10 of those, and they would become their interns or their students, and they would study into them, and they would apply and and make application, to use modern language. They'd make application to the rabbis. What's so strange about this is Jesus goes and hand-selects them and picks them. In divine providence, he chooses these men. So when he says, follow me, that is huge. That's way outside the box. No, no rabbi would, would do that. They had a successful family business. They would drop everything. They were walking into the unknown. Ultimately, it would cost them their lives. But they gave no second thought. I love what the text says. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They're what I call an all-in disciple. Remember when I said, repent and believe, follow fish, follow. You have to ask yourself, when you see words like this in Scripture, is that what you think about when you think about discipleship and being a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Are you all in? If he says, you're going to talk to your neighbor in Barstown, If he says, you know, you're going to do this and that. Are you all in? Are you willing to do what Jesus says? And it's amazing because suddenly they dropped everything. It's kind of a drop everything obedience. But that's, isn't that the, the definition of followership? If you're going to be a true follower of somebody, you, you obey him and you do whatever he asks you to do. I think Jesus still expects this. It's an all-in followership. It's an all-in discipleship. It's disruptive. He disrupted their lives. Jesus is going to disrupt your life. And if you're currently living for yourself and you're not truly devoted in your fellowship, he's intending to even disrupt that, right? Everything else it doesn't mean things aren't important, but everything else becomes secondary, right? Not primary, secondary. Primary is following Jesus Christ. This is why on one occasion, Jesus said, You've got to be willing to hate your mother and father. And you read that and you go, really? That's just like, honestly, like, but what he's saying is, he's talking about priorities. He's not saying you literally hate your mom and dad. He's just saying that can't be your priority. You can't live in your parents' basement, right? When your kids turn 18, because you're all raising young kids, when Aiden turns 18, the doors are, gonna, the locks are going to change. He ain't coming back, man. Right? We're going to shut the, oh, we just kidding, you can't, don't be offended. Uh, but you know, like we're shut, you're going to live life, you know, you gotta go, baby. It's time to roll, you know. It, it's it's followship, right? It, it's not, you, you need to you need to understand priorities, right? It's not an active hatred, it's a comparative. It's a it's a comparative principle by way of priority, right? Well, look, look at the next two. Going a little bit further down the beach. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in a boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Now, when I read this this week, I couldn't help but think. I was sitting outside having coffee in Mexico, and I kept reading the passage. I couldn't help but put myself in Zebedee's shoes. He's got a thriving fishing business. You know that because, A, he owns a boat. A lot of them just cast from the beach if they didn't have money. So he actually had a boat. And two, he had servants. So he had a team. So this is probably a wealthy fisherman he's doing. He's crushing it. And this guy walks down the beach with long, flowing hair, wearing Crocs. And, and, he, and, and, and he says, I'm taking your boys. Can you imagine, Zebedee? If you're a dad, you're probably thinking, hey, balance, pal. You know, work-life balance. You don't need to be all in, right? You got to work-life balance. And he starts coaching them, you know, a little Zig Ziglar on them. And like, whoa, whoa, easy now. Where you guys? And they just drop everything. And they go, Dad, we, we, we got to do what God's called us to do. God's put in our heart to follow him. This is the long-awaited Messiah. 4,000 years you guys have been preaching about him in church. He's here. We're done. We're not going to be fishermen anymore, right? And, of course, Zebedee, I'm thinking, he's got to be going, hey, everything in moderation. you know. He's trying to back his sons down, but they won't have anything. To do with it right he had to have left that moment scratching his head like what did just happen my boys are gone <laughs> right they dropped everything and followed him the elements they followed him promptly immediately and completely all in we're building a pretty good case for followership repent believe follow it's lordship folks when you gave your life to Christ, you gave all of your life to Christ. You gave your wallet to Jesus. You gave everything to Jesus. It's all in. That's, that's the only New Testament disciple that we know of. is an all-in disciple, right? And Jesus doesn't give us impossible commands. He really doesn't. Where he commands us to go, what he asks us to do, he even provides us the ability to do it, right? And then there's this little phrase, repeated twice, to be fishers of men. Repent, believe, follow fish. Follow fish. You're called to fish. That's what you're called to do. When people ask you what you do, you say, I'm a fisher. I'm a fisherman. That's what I do. I do it weekend and week out behind the pulpit or at the gym or obviously hadn't been there in a while um, or anywhere anywhere. You know, you're going wherever you work. You're called to be a fisherman, right? Matthew 20 is the great commission, right? To go and make disciples and to be a faithful fisherman. It's 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 our calling. It's how the world will be changed. And God delights in using common men and women and students. You don't wait. You don't wait till you graduate high school or middle school. Students to do extraordinary gospel deeds. That is the plan. It's plan A. There is no plan B. You are in plan A. You're a part of the team. Welcome to the club. You're a missionary. First and foremost, you're a fisherman. First and foremost, you're a missionary. And then secondarily, you may be a great mechanic or you may be a great painter or you may be whatever it is, a great farmer, right? But first and foremost, prescribed by scripture, You're a fisherman, right? This is a 2,000 year track record starting right here that God delights in using ordinary people just like you and me to preach an extraordinary gospel and to tell people the gospel, which is the good news. And before we ever get to the good news, we tell them the bad news. They're all sinners and they need to trust Christ just like you did. And so you're to be a disciple. But more than that, you're to be a disciple-making disciple, right? That's your calling. You're to be a fisher of men. That's how the kingdom works. The kingdom gets passed on generation after generation by ordinary people being converted by the gospel, repenting and believing, and then being faithful and following, and then getting it, and they're fishermen, and they start telling other people, you got to have what I have, repent, believe, fish, uh, follow fish. You've got to do what I do. This is unbelievable. And you pass on the gospel. That's called gospel-centered discipleship. And it continues even to this day, even to this morning. This is what you're called to do. So if you're trying to figure out what has God called me to do, let me tell you what he's called you to do. Repent, believe, follow fish. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. You're called to that. Now, he may give you another vocation, may give you another, uh, another mechanism to do that, another outlet to do that, but that is locked up. That's time and eternity. That is what we're called to do. So I ask you the question, have you repented? Have you believed? Are you following and are you fishing? And look at their response. These old boys... Dropped everything immediately and followed him. That should be our heart. That should be the urgency of the moment. Even this morning, right? Even this morning. I want to. I want us all to be fishers of men. And I think sometimes it's just easy to go, you know, I, I think that's what Dan's called to do. Or that's what Troy's supposed to do. Or that's what Mike's supposed to do. They're, they're leaders in the church. No, it's what we're all called to do. And that's how the kingdom grows. And that's why God has strategically placed us in Bardstown, Kentucky to repent, believe, follow fish. Bottom line. That's it. And here's the craziness. You don't have to wait until you get really good at it. He's always just chosen ordinary men, just like these cats. They were messed up, jacked up, always dropping balls, running. Hey, aren't you the guy with Jesus? No, I never knew him. What? You just spent three and a half years with him. Peter says, I, I never knew the guy, right? Mark runs out of the garden naked. They grabbed his cloak, and he just runs away naked. What a goofball. Like you're thinking, come on, man. That's your team, Jesus. That's, that's your A team, yep. And it's still true today. He uses a bunch of goofballs, like us, to reach Bardstown. That is the plan. That is the purpose of this, and that's how it's written into the text. And we are, by response today, called to drop our nets and to fish. And to do a lot of other things but to, to fish, right? So, have you repented? Have you believed in the gospel? Are you following? Are you fishing? This is the distinction in the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God, two distinctive marks. The power of the gospel to transform lives... And the power of ordinariness that he delights in using plain, old, or ordinary, sloppy, dull people like us. Isn't that marvelous? This is written, Mark wrote this to encourage you. Not to frustrate you, but to encourage you. To repent, believe, follow fish. Because he delights in using ordinary preaching and ordinary people. Let me read verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1 again, and we'll close. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise. didn't say there weren't any. There are some wise people. There are not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. For God has chosen the foolish things. Look around right here. Of the world to shame the brilliant ones and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that appear mighty and strong and the base things of the world and the despised things of the world Man, God has chosen. He's chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Why does God use ordinary people? Here it is, verse 29. It's a so that, a hint of clause. So that no man may boast before God. That's exactly why. So when people look at your ordinariness, which is exactly the way it's designed, and they see how you are transformed and the power of God working in you, they look beyond you and they see the source, right? The gospel of God, and they give their lives to God, and they give their lives to Christ. So they see how ordinary you are and how changed you are and how you strive to walk in holiness although you do it imperfectly like I do it imperfectly. But they see way beyond that and they they get fixated on Jesus. That's the whole thing. We point people to the gospel of God, right? By this doing, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses ordinary people. Welcome to the team. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for Mark's um, writing on behalf of Peter and how he gets to to the point. He cuts to the chase. He launches... Christ's public teaching ministry here in this text. It's easy to embrace and easy to understand, but costly. And then how he calls just some blue-collar fishermen on the side of the beach to walk away from their dad's thriving fishing business and to give their lives to the gospel, and ultimately both spiritually giving their lives to the gospel, but even their own physical lives they gave to the gospel. Lord, encourage us, strengthen us in our inner man that you want to use every single person in this room to repent, believe, follow, and fish. May this text encourage us, Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.